Welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event. Um, we're thrilled to have over 800 people registered for this special event this evening with Mariana Matsukato and Rana Faruha. So let me quickly introduce our panelists this evening. Mariana Matsukato is Professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at the University College London, where she is founding director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And she's author of numerous influential books, including The Entrepreneurial State and The Value of Everything, which she came and spoke to us at 5 by 15 about when it came out. And now she's back with her new book, which she's here to talk to us this evening about, and everyone is buzzing about this book. It's very, very timely. And it's called Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. And if you haven't got a copy yet, then we urge you to do so. I know lots of you have already ordered through Newham Bookshop and those will be winging their way to you very shortly. And we're delighted tonight to have Rana Faruha interviewing. She's the global business columnist and associate editor for the Financial Times and CNN's global economic analyst. So we're in very safe hands. Now, please put your questions in the Q&A box. It's very important that you remember to do that. It's at the bottom of the screen. And Rana will try to come to as many as she can at the last sort of 15 minutes. We've got an hour in total for this session. So without much further ado, I will disappear into the virtual wings. Welcome to both of you. And I will hand over to Rana, who's joining us from New York. Welcome. Thanks so much, Daisy, and thanks to Mariana for having me here for this event. Um, you know, I, I feel like this is old home week because um, we were together, gosh, several years ago now for your uh, first book, second book? Five years ago. Yeah, for the value. Wait, actually, yeah, the value of everything. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, you, yeah. You were looking uh, equally young and beautiful, so we can, uh, you know, measure. Uh, it all right. Well, thanks. You know, I'm gonna, <laughs> a softball question to start since you're being so nice but um you know, it's I, you know i bring this up because we've we've been talking for a long time um i've been an economics journalist before the ft i was at time and i remember speaking to you it must have been about eight years ago at this point about some of the ideas you were putting forward the mythology that we have about business that we have about the public sector that we have about how capitalism works and you know you were one of the first people to really say look you know the rules of capitalism are not sort of handed down on stone tablets, that there are different ways to structure things. And you put the seed in my mind, which was very influential actually in my second book, um, Don't Be Evil, about the mythology of Silicon Valley. And I, and I wanna kind of start with an anecdote that you told me because it's so relevant to this book and we'll get into, oh, we have plenty of time to get into to all of the highlights of this book, which really everybody should read. It's gonna be one of those that will be remembered as a she got this right at an important moment kind of book. Um, but you told me, uh, we were talking about Silicon Valley and this sort of almost Anne Randian mythology of the hero entrepreneur, you know, that goes it alone and, and creates the company. And so why shouldn't he be a billionaire? And why uh, shouldn't he be able to buy a branch by himself in New Zealand and, and you know, uh, outsource profits and, and put, uh, put jobs wherever, wherever these companies want to. And you said, well, you know, you have to remember that these technologies um, that, are, that are now ubiquitous, the internet, GPS, touchscreen technology, that these were developed with taxpayer money by the state, in the, in the case of those by, by DARPA. And I remember that was like a light bulb moment for me. 
And so that is, you're linking that directly up in this book, which, um, you know, you're talking about a moonshot mission to fix capitalism and going back to the original moonshot, you know, comparing uh, JFK, the, 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 the public sector declaration, we're going to put a man on a moon and how we need to start that process again. So um, with that introduction, maybe you can kind of connect the dots of your thinking. And I wonder what your light bulb moment was going way back in your own research to the mythology we have about capitalism, markets, business. Sure. Wow. That's wonderful. What a great opening. I feel like you've just laid out the big picture. Um, so first of all, thank you so much, Rana. This is now the second time that I've conned you into doing this. So thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> and Honor. if I can, if I can uh, remind you, as we were just saying, your husband was with us at the dinner party afterwards and he was writing his book at the time on Hamilton and that was before the musical came out so I just asked you if by chance you got rich and you're like no someone else got rich but what's interesting with Hamilton and I always bring this up at least that was kind of the key theme of the entrepreneurial state was that the U.S. talks Jefferson but acts Hamilton right Hamilton in terms of you know proper explicit actually industrial strategy all the technologies that you talked about came out of um you know, not only state funding, but state funding that was worried about a problem. You know, the internet didn't come out because someone was saying like they do today, oh, we need an AI strategy. You know, we need an internet strategy. No, there was a problem to solve. And the problem at the time was getting the satellites to communicate. And the internet was one of the different solutions kind of put on the table. And that, you know, bottom up process is really important to remember. In other words, the state is the most efficient, I think, through its different types of public organizations, because it's not like Big Brother, there's a decentralized network of different types of public entities, when it really is kind of purpose oriented, instead of just handing out money to a kind of tokenistic list of sectors or technologies, which are like, you know, trending that year and then change with the new minister, mm. how do we actually focus the role of the public sector? And I'm really also thinking of public organizations like the BBC, and we can come back to that later because we've just done a report on public value within the BBC on kind of purpose-driven policies, right? So worry about the problem and then get your act together through all the different tools you have, you know, procurement, grants, and loans to foster as much kind of bottom-up catalytic across the economy investment and innovation. And the entrepreneurial state book that you helped me launch in the US was looking at it more from the kind of innovation chain. Like how do we get innovation policy right? But also how do we make sure that we end up not just socializing risks through these public mm -hmm. investments, but also the rewards, you know, and, and the examples I give also of Tesla having received the same amount of money as Solyndra and somehow, you know, the, the, the public sector had to bail out uh, Solyndra and not necessarily get some of the upside from Tesla. Those are all kind of questions I roll out in that book. The value book, just in terms of the kind of history of how I've been thinking, the value book took a kind of step backwards and said, okay, hold on. If we're talking about the role of the state, not just as a fixer of market failures, but an active co-creator of markets and co-shaper, mm -hmm. not just as a lender of last resort, but an mm -hmm. investor first resort, all the things in the entrepreneurial state. Well, what does that actually mean for our theory of value, of where value comes from, of where wealth comes from? Um, you know, I, I gave a talk this week at Davos, at the opening of the Davos, uh, 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 World Economic Forum, and I was on a panel on um, stakeholder capitalism. And, I, and at one point, I dared to um, question some of the ways that, you know, even Klaus Schwab was talking about stakeholder capitalism. He's fantastic. You know, we all owe our respect to someone who's been talking about stakeholder capitalism for such a long time. But I took odds when he said, 
you know, wealth is created in business and we need to make sure that that wealth is properly distributed with other stakeholders. And I was like, oh, wait a second, hold on a second. Stakeholder yeah. capitalism is about questioning the theory also of where value comes from. It's a much more collective process than just in business and then distributed through different kind of smart governance or, 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 or policy mechanisms. Um, and so really kind of going after the economic theory of value and seeing how that when you confuse price with you know, value, you also have a really hard time actually getting to some of these questions when you don't have an objective understanding of how production actually takes place. The mm. division of labor between different actors that you know, economists like Adam Smith worried about, we don't have that today with our subjective theory of value. And I was really happy that uh, Mark Carney actually took this on in his Reef Lectures and he cited the book. Anyway, so this book, the Mission Economy book is different. It's really on the back of my intense work with policymakers globally around this concept of, you know, of, of really fostering kind of dynamic capabilities within institutions, within the public sector, so they can actually be confidently and capably a value co-creator and co-shaper of markets, not just a fixer, but also this issue of what does it mean to bring purpose and public mm -hmm. purpose to the center of that. And, you know, I get so inspired, actually, when I work with uh, people and civil servants of, of all levels, whether, you know, starting with the prime minister and going all the way, I don't want to say down because it's not a hierarchy, but really getting my hands dirty with helping to inform and in some case also, cases also creating new institutions like the public bank in Scotland, which we helped create. But what's interesting is actually what happens along the way. You discover it's messy. It's yeah. you know, very hard. The questions that arise are new. They make you think differently. So bringing the kind of practice-based learning back to the theory is really important. And this book is sort of that as well as an attempt to bring the hope, which I think a purpose-driven approach to capitalism does bring to normal, you know, non, not, you know, not just academics and policymakers who I often talk to, but to people who I think have become very disenchanted with politics, rightly so, disenchanted with the inability often of public institutions to really lead and very disenchanted with how private and public often work together in let's call it not symbiotic ways, but sometimes parasitic ways. So that's yeah. really why I wrote the book. Sorry, that was a very long answer. I promise. Um, no, I mean, gosh, there's, there's so much there. And you know, one of the many reasons that everybody should read this book is it's a great primer to pretty much uh, every story that would be on the front page of the papers or certainly the front page of the FT, you know, in, in the near future. I mean, you're getting into, um, uh, populism that has grown out of this disenchantment with capitalism. You're getting into how do we create not just a kind of a technological boom that puts a device in everybody's pocket and a lot of money in um, the pockets of, of tech barons, but something that's more sustainable and shared. And so what I would love is if you could um, talk a little bit about the moonshot, um, the 1962 um, you know, JFK challenge to put a man on the moon. And what kind of moonshot you'd like to see today and maybe kind of compare and contrast that moment versus this moment uh, in terms of the size of the challenge, um, the, the opportunities, but also some of the barriers in place. And then we can kind of start to deconstruct some of what you've, you've laid out. Sure. Um, and, and I should say that throughout the book, I constantly say, by the way, this isn't a cut and paste job because you know, the Apollo program and the moon landing is very different actually from the kind of social problems we have today, which obviously don't have, just have a technological solution. They require major behavioral change, political yeah. change, regulatory change, and so on. 
And so also citizen engagement in terms of even defining missions, especially at the city level and regionally and so on, but we can get to that later. What inspired me about the Apollo program is because I had actually often been referring to it um, in um, you know, books like The Entrepreneurial State, I kind of wanted to work backwards and say, well, what exactly happened and what can we learn from it in terms of dynamic uh, public leadership, but also capability within the public sector. And the first thing is, um, you know, that level of vision, which the Kennedy, you know, 1962 speech had was quite incredible. And, and, you know, the first thing is politicians don't speak like that anymore. <laughs> you know, you know, we're going to go after the moon because it's difficult. It's going to cost a huge amount of money. We're probably going to screw up along the way. You know, does anyone say that? You know, our deficit's going to go up. And he, of course, compared um, as, as many policymakers do, I think, in the end, you know, what it would cost compared to, you know, cigarettes uh, every day. But, um, but what was interesting was he was very explicit, really explicit in the speech. He, he almost foresaw what was to come, that it was going to take a huge amount of risk taking, of experimentation, something, by the way, that I've recently in rereading also uh, Roosevelt's writings, he talked about all the time, the need for experimentation, just try for God's sake, you know, to do things uh, well. And you know, when you do take risks, you do screw up, right? I mean, venture capitalists brag about this all the time that you know, their great successes were on the back of failing trial and error and error and error. But when civil servants make a mistake, they're on the front page of the Daily Mail <laughs> or whatever paper people have, you know, the equivalent version. So that really explicit um, recognition that this very visionary and bold mission was gonna cost a lot, was going to, um, you know, um, entail lots of risk-taking, experimentation, innovation was just there even before they began. And by the way, they had no clue how to get to the moon. <laughs> when just, began. I, I want to just bookmark something that you just said, though. I think that's a profound point that risk-taking and failure is glamorized in business, mm -hmm. yeah. but you get really slammed as a policymaker for that. And, and yeah. that right there is, that, that's something that we need to think about and fix. You get slammed, you get fired, and it and, and it affects your your confidence, right? You're you're fearful. <laughs> yeah. um, and by the way, even if you are all you know all of a sudden allowed to fail, the next question is, are you going to learn from that failure? So the whole point of trial and error and learning how to ride a bike, falling down as you try again. And the other problem, of course, in the public sector is that if you aren't seen as a value creator, co-creator, and co-shaper, if you're not willing also to take risks, you also don't invest within your organization in the ability to learn, right? Mm -hmm. You don't become a learning organization, all these trendy words about the knowledge economy. And so, you know, this is something that really recently in the UK, you might've heard, I don't know if in New York, you get this kind of granular uh, 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 news from, um, from Whitehall here, but a Tory Lord and um, just seeing how much money was being used by the government on consulting fees for both Brexit and for COVID said, this is crazy. We, you know, all this consulting, you know, uh, outsourcing of government has infantilized. I've been starting to use that word a lot. Infantilized Whitehall. So, you know, if you begin with that, with the idea that the state is not capable, you actually make it not capable, precisely because you don't have those incentives to, you know, invest in house. And so, the book, but also my work more generally, is never about glorifying the state. It's actually almost the opposite. It's a condemnation about the kind of public organizations in many countries we've ended up with because of the problematic framing, because of this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that yeah. we've been talking about. But what was really interesting about the Apollo program, coming back to your question, was that you know, it, the, 
the challenge at the time, right? Because there's challenges, missions, and then sectors and projects we can, which we can get later. But the mission, what it was tackling, the challenge was something very broad. It was the, the space race, you know, beat the Russians, the Sputnik moment. The mission was getting to the moon and back again in one generation. But in terms of what it then did across the whole economy, it required huge amounts of investment beyond just aeronautics, right? So there is innovation in um, nutrition, materials, electronics, the whole software industry as we know it today in some ways was an outcome of, 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 you know, of that mission. Mm. And, and lots of private sector engagement. So this was not you know, purely uh, a, a state kind of driven, it was definitely state directed, lots of state investments. But what was so interesting was how it catalyzed huge amounts of innovation in business, right? So Honeywell, General Electric, Motorola yeah. and so on. And again, even more so the way they did that, NASA did that in terms of engaging with the private sector was making sure, or at least the way they made sure they engaged properly and not improperly was to make sure that the procurement contracts, for example, were really designed in such a way where the outcome was very bold. You know, they were confident what they needed to get done, but the how was left open, right? Because if you micromanage a process like this, you're not mm -hmm. gonna get all the bottom up innovation. You're basically telling everyone what you want and exactly mm -hmm. what you need and how to do it, that's not how you get innovation. So that delicate balance of having kind of a top-down process of this is the big goal and we're yeah. gonna design this so that we really foster as much innovation as possible, but also careful that they wouldn't get taken for a ride. There was actually, I should have written it down so I would cite it properly, but there's a part in the book where I talk about um, Ernest Brackett, the head of procurement at NASA, who was very careful. Um, he said, he warned against brochuremanship he said, we have to be careful that when the private sector just comes in and sells themselves, like today we would say with sexy PowerPoints, who knows right. what they brought in then, you know, <laughs> we need to know how to engage with the private sector in order to work together properly. And so that's why we need to invest in-house. But they also then made sure that the contracts in terms of the sharing of the profits or even just the profits that, they, that would be generated weren't in excess. Yeah. I can't remember the exact um, term. I'll, I'll find it for my next stuff. Uh... You know, I love I love the PowerPoint. I'm remembering there's a Henry Kissinger quip about how if you uh, if you have um, if you use PowerPoint, you have neither power nor a point. Ah, uh, that's so, good. Yeah. Um, so it, it, talk a little bit about the spillover effects, which you've kind of alluded to, because I'm thinking, you know, not only in the post 1960s period with software and and smartphones. Yeah. I mean, there's so many spillovers that we know now, but you can go back further. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about railroads at the moment, because I think that there are so many parallels to um, the industrial processes that were enabled by, by railroads and kind of spillovers uh, in both Europe and the US that took, they took decades, right? They, they, they don't happen all at once. But the, the I mean, they're tremendous, you know, uh, entirely new businesses are, are formed in this way. So yeah. And to bring it, the, the conversation to our political moment, I mean, right now we have a new administration in the US, um, a bunch of new executive orders um, by American, uh, you know, there, there is kind of the desire to do some sort of a moonshot around climate. Is, are we leading to a place yeah. that you think is similar to where JFK was and, and what are the challenges and opportunities? That's interesting. So, I mean, just in terms of the spillovers, as you say, there was huge amounts of spillovers across the economy. And sometimes this was literally because of the serendipity, which innovation is often 
characterized by. Like, you know, Viagra was not meant to be for what people use it to, <laughs> it's meant to be for the heart. And then something else popped up. Um, but that's very common actually with innovation, right? You know, you don't actually, you know, it's, there's so much uncertainty. But also the reason you got these spillovers, it truly did get so many of these different sectors working, you know, together and on specific problems. So whether it's camera fo phones, foil blankets, uh, home insulation, baby formula, and so on, like the list is huge. And I have a, a graph in the book that's actually from the NASA uh, documentation about 20 things we wouldn't have without space travel. But the real lesson there, by the way, for governments today is to also be very careful how they evaluate public investments. And in the institute I've set up at University College London, it's a proper department kind of helping people rethink what we even kind of mean by policy in the state. And we work at different levels. And one of the levels that we've currently been working with is helping governments think of how they evaluate what they do. And you'll know, and this is true everywhere, that cost benefit analysis and net present value is used in, in the UK, we call it the green book and everyone has their own way to call the book. But that, you know, if we had evaluated ex ante for sure, the project, they would have never done it, <laughs> you know, by cost benefit analysis, because the risks were just way too high, but also ex post, you need to be able to capture all the different kind of dynamic spillovers again, that happen along the way. And if you don't do that, even when a mission fails, right? Because missions do fail. Um, uh, sometimes you could also see them as at least partially a success. If you look at all the spillovers across the economy, yeah. I'm not a big defender of Concord. Concord is always the project that people bring up saying, oh, she's talking about big projects. It's like, no, listen, I'm not. But even if you look at a big project like Concord, yeah. there's, I've never found, and I know people who worked on the project talk about this, but there's no proper official documentation of all the spillovers that are, you know, that occurred across many different sectors to create Concord. So for the private sector, investing in a plane that's not flying, of course, is a failure. But for yeah. the public sector, where your point is also to catalyze as much kind of additionality, making things happen that wouldn't have happened anyway, you should at least partially take that into account, this notion of um, more dynamic metrics. Can I, can I stop you there? And this is another thing, just to kind of tie together your, your point about linking policy to really practical examples and outcomes, which is so important right now. So this is a really big idea. Um, you're talking about needing to quantify almost on a kind of a national balance sheet, all of the potential gains from something from a, from a policy vector that you know, may or may not be successful, may you know, to a greater or lesser extent, but there's this whole pie of value that is created that never gets tallied. Is that something that we need um, in the UK, in the US, in any country? Do you need kind of a national statistical body to start tallying <laughs> that stuff? I mean, because this gets into really big picture questions about what is growth? What counts as growth? Why do, you know, American prisons contribute to our GDP and the French healthcare system is, you know, and calculated yeah. as a cost, the, the kind of old conversation about well-being? Yeah, I mean, that's actually a topic I tackle more in the value book where I remind people something that is, is quite striking that we haven't fixed, which is when we confuse price with value, it means, for example, that we don't even know in GDP how to value, say, a public healthcare system or public education system when it's free. So it's impossible even to calculate the productivity, which would be output per input. We only look at the cost of the input because we have the price, say, of the teachers, their salaries, and so on. And that's partially why the narrative of the state is always about expenditure, how much it's spending, you know, the deficit. We don't see it as an investment, a long-run investment in the social fabric of society. And we literally don't know how to measure the output of a well-resourced, well-imagined, because it's not just money, 
you know, a, a well-structured public education system. But, you know, you asked me before about sort of modern examples and, and this book is more like the storytelling behind some of the policy work that I mentioned I was doing the last two years, like, I don't know if you can see this report I did for the European Commission, which on the back of that, this notion of missions uh, turned actually in, into a legal instrument that today is being used to um, help design the challenge oriented part of the European Horizon program, which is its innovation budget, which seems to always change exactly how much they're planning to spend, but let's just say 85 billion uh, euros. And the idea really was to say, look, of course we need blue sky research, we're not touching that. But in terms of how we've thought about the verticals in the past, you know, kind of making lists of sectors or technologies or types of firms, you know, this obsession about SMEs, why not think about the big problems that we have, again, these missions, and get as many of your sectors, but also different types of firms, small, medium, and large. And if you are a small firm, you'll need extra support, but you're not getting funding just because you're small, but because you're willing. So this idea of picking the willing, not picking winners. And the climate change example that I have, because I go through different examples there of the modern day ones. So the climate change one, which of course is addressing sustainable development goal 14. By the way, we shouldn't forget every country, US, UK, South Africa, Brazil, they've all signed up to these 17 goals. SDG 13 is life below water, 14 is climate change. Both of those could be transformed into really concrete moonshots, but not moonshots in terms of, you know, projects in the desert, <laughs> um, you know, by that I mean just kind of a big, you know, infrastructure project. It really needs to go, again, in that Apollo kind of way to catalyze as much innovation and investment across the economy. So the example I gave in the report was, you know, having a mission of 100 carbon neutral cities by 2030 in Europe, that would require huge amounts of investment in innovation in real estate and energy and food and mobility and construction materials and the social sector. And the bottom up projects could be as different as um, citizen carbon ID cards. I'm just reading here because I have the nice poster in front of me, clean urban electric mobility, buildings with carbon absorbing components and so on. So the idea that you begin with the broad challenge, transform it into a clear mission, get as many different sectors involved. So it's not about picking sectors, you get try to get the whole economy involved, but then mm. the really hard bit, and this is the bit that I've been learning is what takes a lot of patience when we also um, you know, try to do it in a collaborative way is, you know, what does it mean to redesign procurement, grants, loans, the design of public-private partnerships to foster mm. as much of that bottom-up innovation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned earlier the, um, the, the Scottish bank, the infrastructure yeah. bank, which is, and that's something that's being talked about in many countries, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea there was, you know, in the UK in general, there's no lack of finance. <laughs> there's plenty of finance. Um, only about 20% uh, of the finance in the UK even goes into the real economy. Most of it goes into finance, insurance, and real estate. Yeah. The acronym is FIRE. Um, it's, it's very short-term and kind of, you know, um, driven. And so the idea of, okay, hold on, you know, the real problem here is we don't have enough patient long-term capital. So that's in theory what public banks can provide, but public banks often go wrong, right? This is again, always admitting how things can go wrong is really important. So we don't mm -hmm. pretend that this is all a panacea. In Italy, where I'm from, um, the public bank called Casa Depositi e Prestiti exists. It provides patient long-term finance, but it's, it's often to, you know, whichever sector is crying for help, <laughs> as opposed to being a transformative uh, form of lending that actually helps to, you know, build back better for real, like building a more sustainable, inclusive economy. Whereas in Germany, the KFW, a public bank, I think in recent years has become more mission oriented because they actually had a mission on the top, not a perfect one. I know everyone always uh, 
a blast the end of the Venda policy, but at least it was, you know, a mission to, you know, get rid of nuclear, to really green also the whole manufacturing base, which meant that when the steel industry there was saying, help, help, we need, you know, a bailout, this is pre-COVID, the way that this particular bank, because it was increasingly becoming a bank that would help Germany with this energy vend mission operated was they provided the loan, but it was conditional on the steel industry reducing its material content. And this uh, concept of conditionality, I think is crucial in, inside the mission concept. And it's something that now with the COVID moment, I think is really interesting because it's actually being practiced. So in France, the bailout uh, around COVID recovery uh, was conditional on you know, companies like Air France and Renault actually reducing their material, sorry, their carbon emissions. In Denmark yeah. and Austria, they wouldn't allow companies that have been using tax, uh, uh, you know, paradise is what do you call it, tax evasion. Um, yeah. That became again a condition. Elizabeth Warren with the US CARE Act related to um, coronavirus yeah. argued that we should make sure that companies that receive corona relief don't use it just to buy back their shares, something that you and I have both written about. So that concept of conditionality should be normalized as part of the way that public and private work together towards common goals. And by definition, that in some ways helps to share the rewards, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're sure that the profits that are being generated are being reinvested, A, mm -hmm. into the economy and also into areas that are actually improving the kind of society we live in, that's sort of the deal, but we need a well, deal. So it's interesting. Um, I want to go back because I didn't really let you answer completely the question about Buy America. This is um, oh. something actually that's quite a debate within the FT at the moment because, um, you know, you can argue that, all right, you know, we're, we're in a world where there are multiple systems of capitalism. I mean, namely the kind of more laissez-faire Anglo-American uh, style capitalism and then the Chinese more state-driven capitalism, um, arguably more mission-oriented, interestingly, um, sort of taken from the Hamiltonian playbook in some ways, um, one much. could argue. Um, so if we, if a country like America that, that is big does have food, fuel, and consumer demand, is it okay to say buy America? Or how do you, how, how does that not become a race to the bottom? Kind of when do you know, and maybe this is one of those case by case, you know, you have to admit when you screwed it up or not, questions, but but how does this not become a nationalist race to the bottom? And then where do smaller countries that may not have the ability to connect every dot within their own nation state to do a moonshot, how, how do they cope in this world? So, you know, those are, well, that question is fascinating. Also, because you have to remember that, you know, Biden's coming in after an administration has basically has had a mercantilist policy, right? All the all the focus on walls and exchange rates and trade um, agreements that basically brought us back 400 years. You know, we had mercantilism in the 1600s. <laughs> um, you know, the, the 1651 Navigation Act was all about these kinds of issues. And so when you then, you know, change that and say, no, now we're gonna really make America great again, because we kind of understand what, I don't like that terminology, but anyway, made it, you know, greatish or great <laughs> when it was actually investing in all these things that we were talking about before that requires a lot of attention precisely to these issues of the structural composition of these public organizations distributed throughout the innovation chain. What it doesn't necessarily need is that kind of nationalistic you know, mm -hmm. tone. Um, the reason why Denmark today is the num you know, and it's tiny, I don't know if you've, you know, Denmark is very small. So Denmark is the number one provider of high tech green services to China's green economy. And China's spending more than 1.7 trillion in greening its economy because of this immense pollution problem they have. It's not just about 
renewable energy, it's about energy friendly technologies and so on. And it's so interesting to see where that capacity came from. And mm. you know, you know, all this emphasis on startups um, in many parts of the world, the startups in Copenhagen were able to also scale up and also become really dynamic providers of these high-tech green services because they were part of a very interesting ecosystem that was focused on, again, big problems. They also became in Copenhagen mm. A, a huge attractor of also, you know, startups from different parts of the world interested in that problem. So the really interesting thing is instead of kind of say, saying, you know, make America great or buy American, how yeah. can we make America, if one is interested in America, I tend to be interested in the world, but anyway, let's just pretend that we are just interested in US growth, make America the greatest place where capital actually wants to come, small, medium and, and large enterprises to engage with the coolest, you know, next big thing, um, which I, by the way, think is increasingly how do we bring together welfare state, you know, slash health service kind of public health service yeah. questions with, you know, technology. So we're really strengthening the welfare state, public transport, public education, public health, and really having it meet the innovation state and the welfare state together working hand in hand, um, as opposed to having these as separate things. But anyway, that's what is going to make America great, you know, like be again the best place to kind of do innovation, especially solving again big yeah. problems. And the problem is that when you say just buy America, uh, buy American or, 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 or make America great is it just leads to a very siloed approach. And mm -hmm. one part of that siloed approach is to think that again, it's going to be a list of great technologies that America is oh. going to be great in forgetting that really important point that so many of these great technologies came from not obsessing about the technology, but posing really, you know, interesting questions. And this kind of comes back to your other question about what are those questions today? Yeah. Because they are very social and not just technological, we need to be very aware of other issues that were not important with Apollo, which I think does include, you know, this whole issue of a very polarized political environment, but also where so many people feel that they just have not benefited from the you know, grand things of globalization, global technology, digital revolution, when your wages have not increased for 30 years. And that's partly why you also get incredibly indebted. And by the way, in the UK, the private debt to disposable income ratio is back at the level it was just before the crisis. Mm -hmm. So you know, that should be in the front page of the papers, the fact we have another financial crisis brewing. You know, those problems that are people's problems around inequality, and again, living in polluted cities, the digital divide, which is, you know, hugely problematic now, especially, but has always been, but with all these kids locked down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and yeah. so missing out on their human right to education, because that is a human right. How can we really, you know, get new types of partnerships focused, for example, on the digital divide problem and have that again, foster lots of uh, uh, new forms of collaboration. I just feel like, I just wish that that was, you know, part of the yeah. English Frontier Act and not just, you know, big science, you know, technology and sectors to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, gosh. Okay. So much here. I'm, we're a little more than halfway through and there's a, a lot of interesting questions coming in. So I have a bunch more myself, but I want to bring in a few of the, um, the audience members and ask you some of these questions and um, feel free just, um, we've got a lot in, feel free to throw them in the pot and, um, and folks are going to be curating those for me. So from Carmel McDonald, uh, thank you for your amazing work, Mariana. Um, is here. Um, she's asking basically how we can invite business leaders into solving these problems, um, social purpose capitalism, humanitarian issues. I mean, it's interesting because 
I would actually argue that business has led in some ways in areas or some businesses in some countries have led in areas like climate change. There's also been a weird mismatch where sometimes you have businesses in certain countries leading and then you have other nation states leading. Mm. So how, what, what should that conversation look like? How, how, how do people come together um, from the public and private sector to have these conversations? Is there an institution that you think is the right one for this or? Interesting institute. So, I mean, it depends. First of all, it, it depends what kind of problems we're talking about. So for the truly global problems, like the, this current health epidemic, you know, the fact that we need a vaccine that is accessible to everyone, otherwise it's not going to work, um, or to the plastic free ocean problem that no one nation can, you know, solve on its own by definition, because plastic mm -hmm. travels. Um, I really do think actually be fantastic, and, and it's a great question to ask, do we even have the kinds of institutions globally that bring together the kind of, you know, great minds, but also feeding constantly, being fed by kind of demand pull uh, 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 policies and conversations globally with different types of governments. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible that we have that for, you know, uh, for nuclear physics, we have CERN, right? A huge global, it's a global public laboratory where by the way, HTML came out of. Um, and, and yet we don't really have that for social problems, which is interesting. Like there's no global, you know, public lab around say climate change or even around questions like immigration, which, you know, really needs as many different views yeah, yeah. and so on. So there is that question. I do think that one of the problems kind of more broadly that the question I think highlights is, you know, what are we even talking about? <laughs> so mm -hmm. stakeholder capitalism, which I, you know, was talking about before is about, you know, purpose-driven business in theory. Mm -hmm. However, it's, it's been quite striking to me how when you really need the purpose-driven capitalism, when you really need stakeholder value, it's kind of lacking, right? And the vaccine's a perfect example. So, you know, Pfizer, great job. It was on, you know, it was Pfizer, BioNTech, the, that vaccine, there's different vaccines right now. There was, I think about one, I can't remember actually, I think 2.5 billion uh, dollars worth of public money that went into that, lots of private money. It was a great collaboration, but, we need to govern that process with purpose at the center. So mm -hmm. the World Health Organization, again, a global organization, and Dr. Tedros who's running it, um, you know, has been arguing for a people's vaccine, has been warning against vaccine apartheid, and has been warning against the kind of capture, something again that you and I have talked about in terms of our notion of value extraction, makers, takers, the takers mm -hmm. bit, of how the patent system just, we cannot get this wrong again. You know, patents are often too upstream. They're too wide. By upstream, I mean the tools for research are actually being patented. That's not what patents yeah, should be for. Yeah. They're too yeah. wide, used for strategic reasons, too strong, so hard to license. If we allow patents of that type to be used with the vaccine, we are blocking innovation. We are not fostering collective intelligence. And secondly, we need to really make sure that it's, you know, universally accessible. This mm. is a, a global health pandemic. We're only as safe as our neighbor is. And we, you know, had this crisis begun in Africa and not in China, we would all globally be worse off because unfortunately the health system in many African countries is incredibly weak. That's just so, such an important point, yeah. Mm, but, and so Pfizer hasn't signed up to the patent pool that the World Health Organization is you know, arguing for. So, yeah. um, you know, and it shouldn't go back to, oh, but there was all this private initiative and vaccine. Yes, that's great. And that should be celebrated. It was absolutely an ecosystem, public and private. I actually have the numbers. There's over 12 billion of public money that's gone into the vaccine uh, research for COVID-19, lots of private sector money, but we have to govern that process 
in the public interest. We didn't do that with the internet. That's what's coming out now again with your- uh, Yeah, your that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother panel. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but it's the same problem. I mean, let's yeah. not talk about it, but it's the same problem. Huge amounts of public money went into internet and other things and then, whoa, let's not govern it. And then too little, too late. We end up later ex post worrying about privacy yeah. taxation. Well, so this is, and this touches on a couple of other questions from Melissa. Do you think the government has a role to play in de-risking the role private businesses and investors can play in helping us meet climate and habitat emergencies? How do we ensure that the environmental benefits are put first rather than profit margins of private investors? I mean, this gets to the kind of uh, socializing um, uh, the risk, privatizing the gains question, um, which mm. is very front and center right now amidst COVID. Um, yeah. You know, we're getting ready to do in the U.S., but to in other countries uh, to a to a lesser extent. You know, big public money dumps. Um, there's going to be a lot of businesses that will benefit. Um, difficult to get a transparency around all that. Also, just one other question to throw into the into the basket here, since we're talking about COVID. Dexter Bradshaw is asking, can you compare the moonshot objectives with the race for the COVID vaccine? Aren't they similar? Interesting. Okay, so I personally, and, and people who know me know this, hate the word de-risking. I just think it sets up the problem in the wrong way. Um, and by the word, the word is used, by the way, not by the word, by the way, the word is used everywhere. At, you know, so many different policy, white papers on innovation or something else would say, oh, and it's very important for the state to de-risk. So that's where I always begin saying, hold on a second. If you are taking risks, call it that. Don't talk about de-risking. You know, the mm -hmm. U.S. government didn't de-risk Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, it took <laughs> a huge risk. Orwellian, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the same, you know, because the word, first of all, it's less exciting to be a de-risker. I mean, the first question is, who do we <laughs> want to work in government? Say, we want risk takers. You know, you'll be an investor first resort and so on. And you'll have a portfolio. And yes, things may go wrong. What we were talking about before. So the first thing is, you know, do we want the U.S. government or, or, or the government to be actually taking risks? And if so, we need to ask all the questions we talked about before. What happens when they mess up, right? <laughs> so why didn't Obama, when he was blamed for Solyndra, remind people again that it was part of a portfolio that also included Tesla, same amount of money? And second, why didn't he do what you just mentioned, which is make sure that the government wasn't just de-risking or bailing out on the, on, on the downside, but also getting something on the upside. And what's so interesting about that example, I don't tire talking about it, is that you know, Obama actually said to Elon Musk, if you don't pay back the loan, we get 3 million shares in your company, which is very not very bright thing to say. He should have said, if you do pay back the loan and you're successful, which of course they were, we get 3 million shares. And the price per yeah. share went from nine to 90. That multiplied by 3 million would have more than paid back the cylinder loss in the next round. But really what the question I think is asking is also, you know, do we want government to be taking these risks? And the answer is, of course. But yeah. you know, why? Because business is often risk averse, especially in the high risk phase, especially where you have also high capital intensity. It doesn't mean it should just be random and you know, ditching out money wherever, but it does require again that portfolio approach. But the first question is what is your objective? That's where again the mission comes back, right? So if you want a green transition, if you want a green deal, that's how you should win the election. Once you've won the election, you need to get your hands dirty and making sure you have a wide portfolio is really important, but it does mean to see it through a portfolio, but also to make sure coming back to that other point, designing and you know, we have to design this stuff because it's not currently how it's done, designing all the different tools government has to both get a good deal, as again, the NASA folks were very aware of, and I talk about that in the book, 
Um, and they were very aware, as I mentioned, of making sure that there was an excess profits. You know, this shouldn't be banking when you're trying to uh, yes. solve the vaccine. Um, but also making sure that they were able to foster as much innovation for that kind of public interest uh, objective. And it's, 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 it's a no-brainer. Of course, we should do that around climate. But I actually think all the 17 goals are going to require both government investment, collaborating a lot with the private sector, but especially also on the demand side, making sure that there's demand pull. Mass production, big revolution a long time ago, would not have had the effect it did across the whole economy without lots of demand pull policies like suburbanization. That's interesting. Um, so speaking about missions, Tiffany Hopkins is asking, what if missions for countries clash? Lower income nations might seek industrial growth, higher income nations looking to improve the environment. And that's kind of a classic classic question. Um, and what are the possibilities of a global mission? I mean, mm. what you're saying is that the, you know, that, that there are these, these SDG goals that could be that, but I mean, th this is, this is, I think the challenge of our time in some ways. Yeah. Getting, getting everyone on the same page with this stuff. Yeah. Um, just to be clear, when I talk about missions, at least in, you know, in this book, <laughs> um, I'm not really talking about very wide developmental objectives. So that question is, is incredibly relevant because when you have countries, you know, low-income countries that are still getting on the frontier, of the development path and the technology path, as has been raised in many different, um, you know, global fora, it's unfair to put the same, you know, conditions on them as, you know, the, the wealthy countries actually never had those conditions and we really need those who polluted the most over their whole you know, centuries long development to really pay the costs more. So all those are really, really important global concerns that the World Trade Organization and others should be talking about. But what I mean by missions is, you know, if you are interested in development, what are you gonna do? So in South Africa, for example, I'm actually one of the advisors, we have a really great advisory council for President Ramaphosa, which includes others like Danny Roderick and so on and lots of wonderful African economists. Um, you know, one of the big issues that we're facing there is you have state ownership of stuff like ESCOM, the big state-owned company of energy. What does it mean to own, you know, state ownership in a developing country or even in Italy where we have a, a quite still a bit of state ownership and to transform that away from a static, just owning something to mm -hmm. having the fact you own it actually be, you know, give you more power over transformation. Right, mm -hmm. that's actually why Mac, uh, Mac Macron with the um, COVID crisis was able actually to put those conditions on Renault and Air France because they were partly state owned. And the conditions were about transformation. You don't just give money to stay in place. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of developing countries are facing is a need for transformation, a need for innovation at the same time that you have a developmental pathway. So the fact that you need these developmental institutions like public banks or state ownership, especially, but not only in that phase, transforming that from being a potentially just a stay in place kind of inertial, you know, public ownership and, you know, public sector kind of pushing uh, development to actually be at the same time about innovation and transformation towards, um, you know, uh, fulfilling really important societal objectives, that's mm -hmm. always gonna require change. Hmm. Um, and that's why we need the metrics for that too, to make sure that your policy is, is, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. is good as opposed to bad. You know, did you actually create that kind of additionality in that sector? Making oh, investments happen that would not have happened anyway, or are you just lethargic in giving out money and creating a very parasitic public-private ecosystem? Outcome-based budgeting. Um, yes. 
there's a let chapter me, on that. <laughs> yes. Um, let me let me to bring in in the last five or ten minutes here. Um, just a couple more questions. Carl is asking, how do you make the idea of risk taking acceptable to the general public who might see it as boom bust behavior with their taxpayer money? Great question, particularly over a long haul, because what you're talking about is multi multi decade potentially. Uh, yeah, rulemaking. So again, great question. Um, there's several parts of that question, and I don't want to go into a whole MMT debate here, but there is, of course, well, there is the whole question of what are we talking about? So yeah. in countries that have their own sovereign currency, you'll know, um, but even in countries that don't in terms of when they go to war, when people, when countries go to war, you know, recently Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, did you ever hear the government saying, oh dear, we don't have enough taxpayer money. We can't do it. <laughs> they somehow create the money. Um, even with these recovery funds, what happens? create the money. So the fact we can create money, we, that's definitely another panel. Let's do that some other time and you can get, you know, the experts on that to come to you. But let's just admit that as a historical fact that when something is seen as urgent, money yep. somehow appears. Like again, two trillion in a recovery fund, where's that coming from, right? right? So next thing, the real question is, is the way you organize that, organize that public investment smart? informed by all the kind of issues we're talking about or is it just helicopter money kind of plopping into the system which simply say increases your debt so the fact that in the end what we really care about is the denominator long run growth and gdp of debt to gdp right and as long as you're investing in all the areas that create long-run growth you know public education research science industry linkages innovation policies that create all these spillovers and and, and different policies that in increase productivity then actually it kind of doesn't matter how much money you're investing in because what you're doing is also really having that multiplier effect across the economy and driving that long-term growth. What really matters though, if these public investments are just kind of, you know, filling up holes, <laughs> yeah. um, which Keynes of course said, but just almost facetiously like, come on, we just got to do anything in the great depression. We need to get people to work, you know, Shop, you know, build a hole and fill it up again. But actually, if you read Keynes properly, if you read Roosevelt properly, it was so ambitious. You know, Roosevelt had artists in the world in, in the work projects administration stuff. It was, it was just fascinating, you know, the whole concept of design. I talk about this in the conclusion of the book that we need to kind of bring the sense of beauty and art also into a lot of this discussion. By the way, it's, it's interesting that the plastic free ocean mission my kids know about it every kid knows about it not because of some smart academic or minister but because david attenborough an artist right i mean he's a he's a creative artist uh did that wonderful documentary of blue planet with that last episode so you know with dolphins and everyone choking on plastic so how can we also reignite the imagination yeah you know, also really bringing different voices but the risk bit, I think we already talked about, right? I mean, it will always involve risk. We have to admit that. But how do you learn from it, A? And B, make sure you're not just picking up the bill when things go wrong. You know, but I, I, to, yeah. I want to bookmark this point you're making about art and culture. It's funny. The great minds, my, my, you mentioned my husband at the beginning of this program. He's actually, the current book he's working on is about the art that came out of the 30s and the industrial design that came out of the 30s. And yeah. this is something, I mean, talk about intangible. I mean, there's so much tangible wealth that is yeah. that created by these moonshots. Then there's the intangible, the cultural wealth, which is a whole yeah. nother, uh, a whole nother thing. Let me ask I'm you to find a quote I had by Roosevelt on art, but anyway, buy the book. Yeah. It's a last chapter. Buy the book, buy the book <laughs> which is what I was supposed to say at the end. We're almost there. Um, let me ask a very specific, a UK specific question, which is pretty fascinating um, from Janet Gibson, the conservative libertarians 
are forcing their agenda and bringing forth the philosophy of Anne Rand, both in the US and the UK. In fact, she'll be taught as part of the UK's politics A-level from September. Given the lessons learned from the pandemic and the failure of those policies, how do you see the future of the sovereign UK? God, I thought we were gonna stop on a high note. <laughs> Well, there's another question. So I have three citizenships, luckily. There's a, there's a high note question after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the sovereign UK, um, and, you know, I can't be too downbeat about it because there's nothing we can currently do. You know, I've, I've been arguing for the last three years. I was like, look, guys, watch out. Trump is out soon. Brexit is here to stay. You know, think right, yeah. this stuff is going to be hard to unmantle. Um, so the problem with Brexit is that, you know, we should almost begin with a point that I kind of talk about a lot, actually in all three books, which is what do we know about business investment? What actually drives business investment? Is it just cost? You know, if you want a business to invest in R&D, you just introduce an R&D tax credit? Or is it the perception and expectations of where future opportunities lie? And I really believe it's the latter. And those opportunities can be technological, they can be market opportunities and so on. What Brexit did was decrease massively <laughs> the expectations of the size of the UK market, that's part of the expectations of where future opportunities lie, but also its ability to work in a kind of seamless way with, for example, um, large pots of money coming from Europe for uh, innovation and technological change. The UK has been a huge benefactor, uh, benefited huge amounts from both structural funds, from the European Investment Bank, but also from the Horizon Program Innovation Fund. So, you know, we have already had in the UK lower than average business investment, lower than average business R&D, and this policy, yeah, policy or disaster has just, you know, is, 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 is already, and we're seeing it in the data, lowering business investment. And forget everything else that actually really, really matters. Like, you know, without Europe, we wouldn't have workers' rights, or lots of the workers' rights here actually came from uh, regulations from Europe. Of course, there's also a trade union movement here that's been very important. Uh, but also environmental regulations and the whole notion of solidarity between European countries. All these things actually are much more important. <laughs> um, but the fact of just looking at, you know, British sovereignty, I mean, we're, we've actually become more and more dependent now on other countries yeah. and we need these one-on-one -on -one trade deals. Yeah. And what we're negotiating, what we're seeing already happen behind the scenes is that in order to get the trade deal, you're giving up huge amounts of things. So you've actually lost sovereignty because you're desperately trying not to lose competitiveness yeah, yeah. But, you know that's my subjective view i'm sure others think differently but i think it's a disaster and hopefully um, it can be well, undone. let's not end on that note let's end on a different <laughs> note um <laughs> we have a great question it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting that we've received i would say you know eight out of ten questions have been from women and we have another one oh. from daisy, um from daisy uh uh asking about the fact that so many amazing economic books recently have been written by female authors. That's true. Kate Raworth, um, Catherine Trebek, uh, Pavlina Cherchneva, Stephanie Kelton, you alluded to MMT earlier. Are we seeing a Copernican-style paradigm shift in economics, and is the increased participation of female voices a fundamental part of that? I would personally say yes. What do you think? I think yes. And again, I don't mean to keep talking about this book. It's kind of embarrassing. But in the last section, I say, you know, that I owe my debt to lots of women economists. Why? Because the whole book is about putting life at the center of how we think about the economy instead of the economy at the center of how we think about life. And I list off lots of women who've done that, including philosophers like Hannah Arendt, but yeah. also Eleanor Ostrom through her work on common goods. 
I also talk about Carlota Perez, who's been a, a real mentor of mine and also a very, very good friend. Um, and, you know, or um, Kate Rayworth that you already mentioned, um, who hopefully will be, uh, actually will be joining a, a council that I'm going to be chairing for the World Health Organization on the economics of health for all. It's going to be an all-woman council. Amazing. I'm telling you there this for the first time. No one knows this. Anyway, so, um, you know, I think that's why, that's why we're starting to see women, you know, it's, it's not just that women have always been, you know, really smart and for whatever reason, due to career ladders, sexism and so on, didn't progress in economics. And hopefully we are now, um, you know, moving towards a different type of uh, a job market, but it's also that the kind of economics that really matters today, um, including what we've just been talking about, about bringing public purpose and societal things that matter at the center of how we think about the economy, surprise, surprise, it's been women who've been writing about that for a long time. Yeah. So as, as the world has awakened to how things should be, it discovers all these women who've been actually writing about this for a while. Well, um, let me just say, since this is your book event, you are allowed to talk about your book as much as you want. Um, sadly, we are, we are basically out of time, but I just want to say, you know, it's really a mark um, of what a big thinker you are and what a great book this is that we didn't even touch the surface of my, you know, like 20 question points here. Um, so go buy the book, people. Uh, and read it. And um, Mariana, always a pleasure. Um, really nice to be here with you today. Thank thanks. You. Um, thanks to everybody for having me. Thank you so much. And thanks to the whole team behind 5 by 15 and to also all my support team that got us here. I forgot to wake up this morning um, and I had a, a meeting that began at eight and my alarm clock didn't ring. <laughs> so. Mariana and Mariana, thank you both so, so much. What an honor to be in the company of two such incredible and inspiring women this evening. And um, of course the book is out now. So everyone has to go and pick up a copy, um, Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. And, um, and Mariana and Rana, I hope we will see you again at 5 by 15. That was just incredible. And um, good evening to everyone. Thank you all so much and see you again soon. Thank you very much. Bye bye.